Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're gonna get started. Welcome to the Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinterlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on the Interloop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. But we invite local writers and friends on the show to talk about their writing journey, what inspires them, or to delve deeper into craft. On today's show, we want to talk about publishing in journals and magazines. So let me give you a hypothetical. Say a publisher gets 1,000 submissions for 50 slots in their magazine. Okay, hold on. I'm doing the mental math. Yep. 40 of which are reserved poetry. Poetry. Shorter. Yeah. That's an acceptance rate of 4% for poetry and 1% for prose. That's like, like Harvard can't even beat that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Add to that the statistic that slush pile submissions only account for 1% to 2% of all published work. So non-legacies. Right? Right. Many journals prefer to solicit work from writers they know or somebody with name recognition. And that percentage becomes even more minuscule dismal if you will so how do you win the magazine publishing game you buy a lottery ticket (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm saying you can't win if you don't play actually when i was researching this episode there was a lot of that right (laughs) you can't win if you don't play it's true just like Um, throw stuff against the wall just do it yeah and i feel like you know it's often compared to a lottery yeah um but it's hard not to take it personally when you get rejected. For sure. I like, would... I feel like right when I, sorry. I'm no, just, yeah, please. Right when we graduated from uh, our MFA, yes. you know, everybody was telling you, like, get ready for rejection. Rejection yeah. is normal. And I was like, yeah, but my stuff <laughs> but, but is so good. good that no one can turn it I'm down. different. <laughs> I'm different. I'm special. I'm the 1%. <laughs> I mean, not that 1% for sure, no. (laughs) Not financial 1%. In fact, I'm like the bottom 99. um, Yeah, but it's just, it's not even about that. And it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that it really has nothing to do with how good your work is. Like, it has a little bit to do with that, but that only gets you into the top 30%. I feel like if you're, like good enough to know about literary magazine submissions you're good enough (laughs) (laughs) like that's like what it gets you no 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 right like I mean in terms of skill like what your skill gets you yeah in terms of walking into the door but I don't know yeah I also remember people being like oh personalized rejections are the best it means they read something and they actually looked at it and I'm like yeah but that's like first loser like what no <laughs> I still love personalized I rejections mean, I do too but I think that's because that, that was like drilled boost. into us to be like no you're not gonna win 
but here's your consolation prize. Yeah. I'll take a consolation prize over nothing over and over and over. That's fair. (laughs) I don't know. I think one trick I've found is to like find a journal that really, and I know this sounds obvious, but like really, really aligns with your type of writing, get one piece published, and then you can just like submit to them and they're like similar Mm. squad over and over. And that's where I feel like I've found success. Yeah. I mean, so I actually won a literary yes, contest. Yes, Yeah, what am I talking about? Talk you about have... the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> talk about winning the lottery. It, it definitely felt like winning yeah. the lottery. But I will say that I, like, it was the first time that I made, like, first of all, I took the best story I've ever written. And yeah. I knew it was. Yeah. And I, like, knew it was solid. After, like, 10 years, literally 10 years. I was going to say, you worked that story. Of editing yeah. over and over and over after working with, like, amazing people at Sarah Lawrence on the story. So it was literally, I knew it was my best story, but it was the first time that I like made a concerted effort to be like, I am putting this story out there to as many journals as I can stand. Yeah. Right. So I spent like $350. That's the other thing on. Yeah. It's uh, contest entry fees. Um, and one January I was like just blasting it out to all of them. Yeah. And you know what? That is actually what helps me the most with projection. Yeah. Is if I have the story out to other magazines, then when rejection comes from certain You're magazines, like, there's still a chance. I'm like, it's, it's still out there. It's still out there. It yeah. can still happen. Um, so anyway, then that ended up yeah. getting me the contest win, which was which pure awesome. luck. No, I mean, it was good. I mean, it was good. And then <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and my listeners can't see me doing my hand yeah, motions, yeah, yeah. but there's like 90% of good it gets me up to the 10 percent, and then that less 10 percent, it was pure luck well so then what are those factors right like it's like who's reading it yeah who may be reading it i mean obviously a lot of time it's it's like who knows someone but like we don't know anyone i don't know anyone yeah not at that level no no we well we know our next guest we do yeah that's true (laughs) all right all right But, (laughs) but it's like really comes down to like who is the who's the reader yeah it's true maybe I don't know. Maybe someone else knows more than we. Yeah. Do. Well, speaking of our next yes. guest, yeah. let's let's bring her in. Um, so we're gonna get more on magazine publishing from an actual editor of an actual magazine, cool, cool, cool. not us amateurs. Um, up next, we'll hear from the first Black openly trans woman to helm a major literary publication. Woo-woo. Stay tuned. Let's gather. <laughs> gather. Gather, please. Um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing getting published online, and now we'd like to welcome our good friend, Den Michelle Norris. She is the editor-in-chief of Electric Literature, winner of the 2022 Whiting Literary Magazine Prize. And as we mentioned before, she is the first Black openly trans woman to helm a major literary publication, a 2021 Out 100 honoree. Her writing has been supported by McDowell, Ten House, and the Cambelio Center for African American Fiction, and appears in McSweeney's American Short Fiction and Zora, Holy Shit!, she is co-host of the critically acclaimed podcast, Food for Thought, and her debut novel, When the Harvest Comes, is forthcoming from Random House. Woo! Woo! 
All of that. And most importantly, Den was by our sides as we all braved the MFA process at Sarah Lawrence College more than a decade ago. Shh, don't tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Welcome, Den. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I still cannot believe that it's been that many years. It blows my mind. It really blows my mind. Yeah, I feel like I, I literally woke up one day and <laughs> 10 years had gone by. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what yeah. have I been doing? <laughs> writing a book it's fine yeah <laughs> it does take all that time though it does but look at everything that you yeah. accomplished over the past 10 years you're killing it um <laughs> so let's jump right in yes yes um den you told publishers weekly that you once thought of electric lit as a quote fearless renegade space and that you were eager to quote rekindle that radical energy when you took over so can you tell us more about electric lit and how that how that goal has been going so far as you've been leading it. Which I love that, by the way, because I feel you. Like, Electric Lit is, in your mind, like, radical, right? I feel like it really is. I mean, well, so the the basic overview is Electric Literature is a digital um, digital magazine publisher. We publish short work online, um, and our mission is to make literature more exciting, relevant, and inclusive. We've been around since 2009. Mm -hmm. We have over 3 million readers annually, and we publish everything from poetry to essays to flash fiction to mm -hmm. um, longer form short stories, author interviews, and book lists. And so we're quite, um, wow. we're a small team, but we're quite busy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think when in published in electric lit's earliest days it felt like this sort of re fearless renegade space where i think a lot of more experimental work was being published mm -hmm. um i think that was a time when um even what was happening at journals was a little bit more structured a little bit more strict in terms of just the kind of work that they were publishing and electric lit was out here taking risks mm -hmm. and publishing new writers mm -hmm. and um you know, our profile managed to get big and we've continued to publish amazing work for all of these years, but every editor in chief ends up kind of having the opportunity to kind of shape mm -hmm. the magazine in their own image and do what they want to do. And so the funny thing is that even though um, I said that in that interview and I felt that way, and even though in like my first few days of working there when Halima Marcus, the executive director, and mm -hmm. I would have conversations, she would say that like, you know, a huge part of the reason why you got this job is because we loved your editorial vision mm. in the in the interviews. I felt like I didn't know yet specifically what any of that meant. Mm. And I knew that my job at the forefront of this sort of venerated um, iconic journal was to spend the first year just understanding the basics of the job paying attention to who we were and what we were doing. And as I grew my comfort, I could then start putting my stamp on things. Mm -hmm. And so um, now that I'm in my second year, I'm starting to do that in different ways. And there's lots of ideas that are flying around. But the biggest thing um, for me is that uh, we just recently launched um, a series called Both And, and it's an essay series that centers the voices of trans and gender nonconforming writers of color. and um, this happened because in the first couple of months of my working there, there were some things that were happening in the in the trans world. There was a, a controversy around the author Jimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and at the same time, Dave Chappelle had put mm -hmm. out his comedy special, which really took aim at trans folk. And um, these these were big talking points, and they stayed in the news cycle for quite a while. But 
there were rarely trans people um, actually included in the conversation. In the conversation. So yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was, and I, it just drove me crazy. I was so tired of it. And I thought, okay, well, I can't, like, I can't get a trans person of color booked on CNN. I don't have that much power. Then, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we I don't can't. want CNN anyway. <laughs> I mean, truly, <laughs> truly, um, that's probably for the best given what's happening with CNN right now. Exactly. Yeah. But I was like, what I can do is help trans writers of color um, publish in a place where their words will be seen yeah. by agents, by editors. Yeah. I can I can use my position to help build um, build a pipeline mm-hmm. so that when this happens again in three years, there are more trans people of color who are visibly talking mm-hmm. about our own lives and our own stories and who hopefully have the opportunity to advocate for ourselves mm-hmm. in those conversations. So that's a very long, long-winded um, answer. But I guess the point is that I think what's radical about Electric Lit is that we are completely independent. And so we get to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. We have complete control. I think that's really important in the literary magazine Mm, um, world. Yeah, that's and and, you know, we we have we just we have that power. And I think that feels what's radical. And then what we choose to do with that power, I think, is really exciting. Yeah, that's that is very exciting. And I definitely saw those. I myself am a member of Electric Lit, yeah. so I saw those emails going through about both and, and I was yeah. very excited. And speaking of which, there's also been a bunch of emails flying around about this new creative nonfiction category, which Courtney and I are nonfiction writers, yeah. so you have to tell <laughs> us about that. Yeah, so um, this is this is so funny. This is one of those things that came up in that first year um, that I was working there, and I think, um, you know... Electric Lit had kind of gotten to this point where our essays, our nonfiction um, offerings were centered around blending personal narrative with critical analysis of some mm-hmm. sort of cultural property, a book or a film or a TV show mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. perhaps visual art or an album or something. And that's interesting and all well and good. And I think part of the reason why that happened is because Electric Lit came up really during the boom of the internet think piece. Absolutely. And we were an early internet yeah. publisher. And so, you know, those pieces could go viral and be and say really important things and get people to think about things in new ways. And so I think that's sort of how that happened. Mm -hmm. And that's all well and good. And I love those essays. But I'm primarily the essay editor at Electric Lit. And I was like, I want to expand the purview of what we're doing. I kind Mm -hmm. of always had that in mind, simply because there are so many beautiful nonfiction pieces of writing that don't interact with a tv show Mm -hmm. and we would sometimes get those pieces and i would bring them to our editorial meeting and my staff would say well that's not really an el essay and in my head i'm like well it should be it could be like it could be um you know let's not necessarily reject it just because of that and it felt sort of arbitrary to me and so um i just started thinking about this and actually the creation of both and because those essays are not largely speaking analyzing Mm, cultural property uh that was part of my experiment in terms of how I might be able to bring this kind of work into electric lit and so I'll just say that we were in a board meeting at the end of last year and one of our board members Meredith Toulousen we were having a conversation sort of about what what constitutes an electric literature essay and we were talking about how we were we were realizing that we're really like part of our place in the 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 world of, of um, literary journals is to be an advocate um, for new and emerging writers. Yeah. But that's really 
kind of our bread and butter. And we want to talk about that more. And we want to emphasize that more. And so Mm. she said, well, you know, she was like, I'm not sure where that idea that an electric literature essay has to analyze cultural property um, came from. But I think that would be a bit of a barrier to new Mm -hmm. writers. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we kind of made the decision then that we were going to um, find a way to do this. Mm-hmm. And then when the news of Catapult closing happened, mm-hmm. um, we were yeah. like, we need to do this and we need to do this now. Because I remember the day that that was announced, I got text messages from so many friends who are nonfiction writers. And they were like, where are we going to publish? Like gonna, all yeah, of our right. outlets yeah. are shutting down, mm-hmm. which is which is true. And so that gave it an, a sense of urgency. And so mm-hmm. then Halima and I were like, all right, we need to do this and we need to do this now. And we've been sort of working on it. Um, since and it's like it's complicated it's not the easiest thing to do we have to build a whole new um we have to bring in more people to do this work because i know we're going to get flooded with submissions we have to build Mm -hmm. a process and a system which is not difficult to do necessarily but it wasn't like we could immediately be like we're opening these up right now yeah we have to like set it up to be successful um but we're we're taking that time and we will be opening for submissions um on june 1st for the creative nonfiction. Amazing. So. well i'm a, i'm super excited I because know. i know nothing about pop culture <laughs> <laughs> i live under a rock i have my whole life um so when i became a member i was like oh i should submit and then i was like looking around and i was like oh this is i'm not gonna fit in anywhere in here well um, and for me i mean like i have an art history background mm. and so some of my early writing did have some of those elements yeah to it, but i've like been yeah but uh-huh. i've been out of that space in such a way that i'm like there are just people who know more are more tuned in are and like would write a better piece in that right realm than yeah. i would yeah, so, yeah like, we all have imposter syndrome yeah. on how much knowledge we have <laughs> right but i mean like no but one of the things um and Jen, this just speaks to what you're saying like in my mind, electric lit is accessible, right? And mm. partially because of that, starting in the kind of digital revolution being a digital magazine, like that opened so many doors mm-hmm. and to stay committed to that space and like actually be taken seriously and revered is just huge. So. Yeah. And it's nice to hear how it's evolving to continue yeah. that mission, as you said. So I'm going to be submitting now. Um, So why don't you give us a a little peek behind the curtain? Our listeners, uh, we did a survey of our listeners and they really want to hear more about publishing and the process. Um, So I wonder if you could just kind of take us through like how a submission gets from the slush pile to publication. What's that process look like? Yeah. So there's a couple of paths that that a writer can take. Um, But the most common path I would say is, so if you're, <clears throat> if you're doing nonfiction, if you're doing if you're doing um, an essay or an interview or a book list, then generally, generally what you're going to do is you're going to send us um, a pitch of what you're you're trying to write. And um, we we never are not taking pitches. And I get pitches at all times of the day. In 2021, on Christmas Day, I got oh 10 pitches. Wow. I was not checking email, but I got 10 pitches. people are like, like, I don't want to deal with my family right now. I'm going to do this instead. <laughs> yup. And I'm like, do what you need to do, but you're going to get my away message. <laughs> um, so we, we do everything by pitch. And what happens is I will, I, I read every pitch. I don't respond to every pitch I when I started the job I that was an ambition of mine but it's Mm. just impossible I mean I get thousands of pitches in a year um but I read every pitch 
And I bring them to our editorial meeting where we discuss um, whichever pitches I think have potential. And that's a really important part of the process because mm. what might happen is a piece that I don't think is quite right for us or that I don't think is quite right for me, another editor might look at it and be like, I would like to edit this. I think I have the vision to make this what mm-hmm. we need it to be. Um, yeah. and, and it opens up opportunity for writers. The other possibility is that we might, we might discuss a pitch that has some sort of element of something we're looking for, but we're not sure if this is the right writer to do it, but maybe mm-hmm. we will take some element of this and commission another writer that we know potentially that we think can deliver what we need them to deliver. Um, there are all these different like ways in which the conversation basically just opens up more opportunity and helps mm. clarify um, whether we should take a piece or not take a piece. Mm. Um, and so we have a robust conversation for usually a little over an hour about a number of pitches. And then I'll go back and, and contact writers and give them feedback. And it can be anything from an emphatic yes, when can you get me a first draft to, um, to no thank you. Or it can be like, I don't think this is quite right. Here are my thoughts on how you Mm -hmm. can make it stronger. I hope you'll send it to me. Um, I hope you'll do these things and send it to me again. Mm -hmm. But I understand if you just want to publish it as is somewhere else, but as is, it's not going to work for us for Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, And usually when I do that, writers will say, no, I want to publish with you guys. I'll go work on it and and bring it back, which is really exciting to hear. And so that's the process for most things. And even for recommended reading or the commuter, um, where they have their own staffs as well, you submit with those you submit through submittable, but you submit, um, it gets read by readers. And then if it goes up each level, um, then eventually it comes to their editorial meeting that they also have weekly and they'll discuss it and make a decision. The response times for those are much, are typically much longer. And that's how the new creative nonfiction program is going to run as well. People will Mm. submit full drafts, um, via submittable Mm -hmm. and my sort of additional team of readers will read them. And then if they get up to a high enough level they'll get to me into the meeting and we'll discuss them um yeah so yeah let's talk about that um sort of ask that avenue Mm -hmm. uh where it goes up the the chain and then it gets on your desk what are you looking for when you read a creative nonfiction piece like do you know within the first two sentences if you like this piece (laughs) or like what is the usual way that that goes um it's really interesting so I, my training, as you know, is as a fiction writer, and that's most of my editorial experience. And so um, what I've found is that functionally speaking, I have to think about these things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so with fiction, I might read it and be like, this is not right. And I, and I might know very quickly, yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, with nonfiction, that's rarely the case. I might say, mm-hmm. oh, I really love this voice, or I love this aspect of this, or not. But I usually have to get much further in a submission um, because I have to understand how it works in the world. I don't mm. know if I fully understand why that is, but I think that with nonfiction, it's not divorced from reality or very yeah. real consequences. And it's not that fiction is necessarily right. either, but with fiction, it can be because you can just say this is fiction. And when we're talking about nonfiction, very often we're talking about just real world things, real world mm-hmm. people, real world circumstances. And so the, how something functions Mm. ends up mattering in a different way, sort of above and beyond the specifics of the craft. And so I have to think about it differently. But that being said, I absolutely am always looking for work that surprises me, work that's innovative. I think with nonfiction on a craft level, very often writers 
don't tend to access all the same sort of creative tools that they might access if they were fiction writers because we get we often get locked up in writing things chronologically and writing things exactly mm-hmm. as they happen. And so people right. often think that some of the tools that are at their disposal are not at their disposal. Yeah. And so I'm looking for something that's surprising on a craft level and a content level, mm-hmm. um, something that sort of grabs my heart and won't let go. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, again, because of this new creative, uh, you know, general creative nonfiction direction that we're going, I will see more work that does that and I'll be able to lean into that sort of creative side of things a little bit more than I have been to this point mm-hmm. yeah that's so awesome. yeah yeah exciting I yeah. know exactly what you mean about grabbing the your grabbing heart yeah I love I love like I I I have experienced the grab your heart part but the the don't let go really like is the kicker right I and I love that expression that's very so as you mentioned, you are yourself are a fiction writer. So let's kind of ch- switch gears and talk about your own experience with publishing. Um, you have a book forthcoming from Random House, which Woo! is so exciting. Congratulations. Uh, tell us what that was like. <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> 10 and a half years of um, 10 and a half years of work of where I started that yeah. book um, the summer between our two years at Sarah Lawrence, um, although I didn't admit that it was a novel um right. until we were in the second we don't semester admit any of our second things. year we don't no. admit it we're like no, no 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 i kept saying this is a long short story and in my workshop <laughs> the first semester of our second year people kept talking about it as a novel and they, they'd roll their eyes and be like i'm sorry i mean this story and quotation mark <laughs> because i was like not ready to say that it was a novel uh-huh. um so the writing process itself has been really long but basically it's been sort of magical and i have felt extremely lucky the first thing that happened was that I was able to publish an excerpt of it in Apogee Journal in 2016. Nice. Um, and at the same time, I used that excerpt to apply to Tin House, where I got in mm-hmm. and won a scholarship to go to Tin House to be in a novel workshop with Alexander Chi. And then that oh. fall, I applied to McDowell with that with that excerpt as well. And it got me in all those places. Wow. Um, Ooh, so I, I just want to I just want to pause you there and say, look how that one, one section, yeah. mm-hmm. how hard it worked for you and your career. I just want listeners to oh. take note, <laughs> just yep. take note that Find you that can piece. keep using that same piece yes. to move you forward. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, yes. And I will tell I will. I will, There's more to that. So I, I, I got into those places where I had a chance to work and to write and to meet a few mentors and all of that. And then the piece that I published in Apogee Journal um ended up in an anthology edited by every edited by Jennifer Baker called Everyday People the Color of Life and that anthology ended up on the desks of book editors um mm-hmm. the, it was wow. published by Atria which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster and you know editors are always reading and looking for people and so it ended up on the desks of some editors and editors were then interested in me and reaching out and were like do you have a book project i see you're working on a novel and i was like yes in fact that is part of the novel <laughs> and they wanted to see pages and so then my mentors were like Amazing. get an agent now get some pages. I, was gonna pages. Say, yeah. I also want to pause you there because yeah. this is like a, a little different than some people do it you found an editor first and then got an agent which is yeah a little out of order yeah. yeah well the the editors who were interested are not the editors who who so in some cases we didn't even send my book to them for sure. various reasons you know, uh, it's been years, people leave the industry, you know, yeah. things change. But yes, it was true. It was it had editors because my book wasn't finished. It was only the fact that editors wanted to see pages that everyone was like, now you need an now agent. You need- like mm. you need an agent. I know the book isn't done, but get an agent. And so um, I found a wonderful agent. I 
I didn't, I had already had some agents reach out to me, so I didn't go through the query process. I just like contacted them and I was like, I'm ready. Like people want to see it. Met with all of them. Um, I really loved one and chose him. And then he waited patiently for four years <laughs> before I was ready wow. to send him a draft of, of the book. Yeah. And so we sent, You can't rush fine art. Okay? You can't rush art. And I tell people <laughs> this all the time. You have to. Um, and I think this is really important because for me, um, all the time that I've taken has only benefited me. Yeah. Like if I had finished totally. the book earlier, I wouldn't have had the visibility I have. I wouldn't yeah. have been able to probably sell the book for the m- amount of money that I had that I was able to like it. Everything worked out better. And um, we actually tried to sell the book early in 2021 on a partial manuscript. My agent was like, you know, I think maybe if we can sell it, we'll get some money in your pocket. It'll be easier for you to finish it. Mm-hmm. And we went on a round of submissions. It was very hard to sell because it wasn't finished, but a lot of editors really loved it. And then one editor did make an offer, but mm-hmm. that editor was like, I advise you to wait because wow. given the okay. interest, this will be a competitive sale when you finish the book so just go finish yeah. the book and we'll get more money wow. that's awesome um and so i i did that i waited a year and a half and finished the book and then we sent it in, out in the fall of last year and um that was a quick process um i think it sold in about 10 days it was a preempt which oh means goodness. that before you go to um an auction the publisher's like we want you to take it off the table mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we'll give you a decent amount of money to do that so yeah. that you won't even they have to make you an offer you can't refuse right, right? <laughs> they have to make you a really great exactly they have to make yeah. you a really great offer um and so that was really amazing because going on submission is really hard I don't know how writers yeah. do it and I was losing my mind um and it finished and we sold and now I'm just in the process of working on edits amazing Dan I'm having like some triggering moments I'm in the process of trying to buy my first home and it's like a very similar process it's like I met my agent four years ago she waited until I actually had my shit together like, yeah so no and it's like you gotta put an offer down you gotta do it right you gotta I'm like uh, uh, no I have to do this with my writing too I don't know this is just too much yeah I, yeah. I, I love that story because I feel like you know, it really demonstrates yeah. how there are multiple avenues to get to the same destination. Yeah. Like you can, you know, go through the slush pile, you can go through contacts, um, you can get an agent first, or you can mm-hmm. start publishing things in online publications like Electric Lit and get attention that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and if one way isn't working for you, then you can try a different Switch avenue. Tactics, you know? right? like, yeah. Yeah. I had I had an agent tell me like, um, we can't nobody can like sell a memoir from some a nobody yeah <laughs> and i'm like ridiculous. okay i'll go be somebody <laughs> like fine i Here, mean here's a contest win for you <laughs> thanks so much but also that's not true like it right. frustrates me when when agents say these things because usually the unspoken part is no you can't sell a memoir mm, from a nobody but right? someone else can mm-hmm. i i have a friend who, I mean, she was on her third agent by the time she sold her first book, which was a collection of short stories. But one of the agents that the last agent that she fired was like, like, couldn't sell it, wouldn't sell it. She fired that agent, got another agent. It sold in a day, a collection of short wow. stories. Like there are no rules in this industry. And yeah. so um, if a person believes in you and loves your work enough, then they will figure out a way to make it happen. People don't sell books uh, novels on a partial manuscript and I had the opportunity to take a deal yeah, on a, right, on a, a yeah. two book deal on two unfinished books wow. because that were like there are no rules and so 
Um, you just have to sort of trust your instincts. And and as you move, make your way in the world, pay attention to how things are happening mm. for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the path is sort of being created around you. And then you just have to sort of stay on that path. Or if it's not working for you, then you have to get off and try a different path. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, exactly. But yeah, it's I just... I, it drives me crazy because it's like that's just not true like there yeah. are no rules mm-hmm. here it's yeah. the wild the publishing industry is the wild west and anything can happen <laughs> on that note i would love to hear an excerpt yeah. from the forthcoming book if, if we can um yes i um i'm just gonna read a scene from actually the opening um so the book is called when the harvest comes and since it's the first season thank you thank yeah. you <laughs> Um, and I guess since this is the first scene, I don't have to give you any context. We'll just, sure. I'll just start. One. Someone will come. Sirens will sound in the distance. Lights will rise from darkness like seraphs, dancing red and blue. Salvation will be brought by men sent from God. These men will come from the east. There is a campus not too far in that direction, a satellite of the state university. The men will move as quickly as possible along the highway over black ice, close to the barrier that divides east and west. Tread marks will lead them to an indentation in the guardrail, scratched with white paint. The men, always moving, will jump down from their truck, rubber boots plomping to the pavement with the strength of hooves. One of them will wonder aloud how that white car got all the way down the hill by the quarry. You can hardly see it, he will say with his hand at attention. His eyes will strain under the swirling clouds that block the moon, that mute the stars. Another, braver, will lead them over the guardrail, hooves romping easily down the hill like broncos. The men will follow the path cut by the car as it flipped over and over and landed on its caved-in hardtop. The reverend remains strapped in his seat, upside down, his nose only inches from the ground, unable to move. His Toyota crashed into a tree with such force that several elderly branches, heaving from the weight of the snow, sought relief. They broke from the trunk, tumbled through the wintry air, and landed on the overturned car. Periodically it creaked, warning him. At some point he knows the car will give under the excess weight, but by then he will be saved. The men will have come and gone, and in between, ripped him free. They will come shouting into their walkie-talkies, demanding backup, cursing, not caring if their words offend him. The glare from their flashlights will find him, then blind him. Someone will shout for the men at the top of the hill to aim their headlights at the quarry, give them some light. The Toyota's lights will be extinguished by then. The battery will have died. Once there is light, the reverend will see how the snow has frozen beneath him, how every window has shattered, how the car he gave his 16-year-old son eight years ago crumpled around him as though it were nothing more than a toy, a matchbox model like the ones Davis used to play with. The youngest, newest trooper will kneel as close to the car as possible. He will extend his arm through the broken window. He will shine his flashlight into the reverend's face, then up and down his body. Are you hurt? He will ask. Davis, the reverend will ask the man, is it you? Sir, are you hurt? Can you move? The trooper's voice will ring with easy authority over more sirens sounding in the distance coming their way, over the slow rumble of traffic that will begin to pile up, though it's after midnight and the roads are barren, over the chatter of the reverend's teeth, for by this time he will be delirious and so cold that his words will be nearly unintelligible. The reverend will try to turn his head until he can see the trooper's eyes. He will try, but he will fail. He will know that the trooper's voice is not his son's voice. The trooper's hands, large, pale, and strong, are not his son's hands. He will wonder if these are the hands that will keep him alive, bring him to safety. He will wonder if safety is what Davis sees in that man, the white man, 
the one he plans to marry. He will wonder if Davis ever saw these things in him. Sir, don't worry. We're going to get you out of here. Sunny boy, he will say. Everything is going to be fine. I need my son. I need to see my son, he will say. Your son isn't here. He's safe. It's only you in this car. The trooper will consider the fact that he too would be thinking of his son if it were him trapped in that seat, hanging upside down, waiting for help to come. With his free arm, he will slowly reach his hand through the broken window until he can gently press his palm against the driver's shoulder. He will do his best to look the driver in the eye. Sir, we're going to get you out of here. I'll stop there. No, don't stop! <laughs> Tingles all over my body! <laughs> oh my god. Oh, thank wow. you. I'm so excited to read that. <laughs> uh, I love the tension and oh my the god, beauty. So and I just so feels like so, like the relationship between the father and the son is already just feels so there tangible mm. oh exciting. thank you thank yes. you so exciting thank I, you uh, sorry go ahead no i just like the the opening the very opening too like it has this otherworldly like space age feel to it right like it's like or like apocalyptic you know which like yeah. from this individual and the branches is, being weighed like, down by the snow i was like where are we going what is happening what, what like yeah it was awesome <laughs> thank you thank you yeah i one thing that's I'll just say that's odd is when I wrote that scene, um, I had just read a novel and it completely transformed how I wanted to do language in my novel. And I was yeah. like, I have to start over again. Like I have to completely oh. start over. And I wrote this scene, that scene first and I knew immediately, I was like, that's the this... opening of this book. Like nice. I knew it. Yeah. So cool. Love it. Well, congrats. I'm so, yeah. Thank you. Right. And thank you so much for just this whole amazing conversation. Yeah. I already feel like I've learned so much. I know our listeners have. Absolutely. Um, and for yeah, being so open great. and candid yeah. and really sharing that process because, you know, there are, that's the other thing about submissions, right? It's like this barrier, the mystique of like what mm -hmm. happens behind the closed door. Like, you know, you can't know. Um, so we really appreciate you sharing that with us. Of of course, I'm happy to. It, yeah, it, it it does feel mysterious, and I think people often think that there's something more sinister going on. Yeah, but it's just yeah. a lot of overworked people. Yeah. Like always, I feel like being an editor, I'm always behind. I'm always behind. Like mm -hmm. I just there's no catching up. Um, and I think every editor I know, I think feels that way. And it's just um, like we want to read people's work and publish it, and and you know that's it's as simple as that. And it's a labor of love because most people don't get paid. I get right. paid. This is my full time job, but most people right. don't get paid. Totally. So, you know, we just do it because we love the work. Yeah, we're all just people we, yeah, who love to read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, you can catch Den Michelle Norris over at Electric Wit on the Food for Thought podcast and keep an eye out for her forthcoming novel, When the Harvest Comes. Den, thank you again so much for this wonderful discussion. Can you stick around for a little trivia? Absolutely. Amazing. Awesome. Up next, find out who's more competitive, doctors or writers. Hmm. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Inner Loop Radio. We turn now to a little game of trivia. I love trivia. I spent way too many hours doing research for I this game. I bet you did, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, are you ready for some trivia? It's going to be you against Courtney. Okay? Ooh, oh, God. All right. <laughs> I'm already like, Courtney, you're going to win. I'm so bad at no, trivia, but it's fun. But it's really fun. <laughs> All right, this is this is my favorite question. So, okay. which of these magazines is the most? Selective? Wait, hold on, hold on. What are the rules? Do we have to like buzz in or how? Does no, this no, no. You okay. both give your opinion. Okay, and okay. honestly, you can collaborate if you want. To okay, all right, great. Um, so which of these magazines is the most selective? A Science Magazine, which is a peer-reviewed journal. Oh, I'm well aware. B <laughs> The Sun Magazine, oh. which, as you know, is the nonfiction right. magazine. Okay, C, Journal of the American Medical Association, or D, they're all about the same. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my inclination is to say science, uh, only because that's the world I've been living in for the past couple of years. But I'm trying to, I'm like, what is their index? And I'm trying to, like, think what, if I, what I actually know. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Maybe they're all about the same. I think I'm going to guess also that they're all about the same because I think it could go any way. Yeah. Um, but I do. My understanding is that scientific and medical places are hard to publish in as well. So. <laughs> Was it the sun? <laughs> it's the sun oh magazine. And by a long oh, shot. Wow. Oh, my God. I was I was hoping it would be the sun. I, I know. Kind of. Right. Like, yeah. Let me tell you these numbers because they are shocking. Science magazine has an eight percent acceptance okay. rate. That sounds right. The Journal of American Medical Association has a four percent acceptance what? rate. That's and the sun magazine has a point two five percent. acceptance rate. two five. Wow. Wow. Oh. I mean, I knew it was tough, but I didn't know it was that tough. That's, wow. That's amazing. I love The Sun. Like, the <laughs> I they're such too. a great journal. Yeah. They publish they incredible work. They really yeah, do. They do. It's yeah. like the only magazine that I've actually, like, physical magazine that I stay subscribed to. Yeah. And, like, yeah. In the mail. It is, it's beautiful. Yeah. And then I pass them off to my mom. We, like, yeah. share. You know. Oh, my God. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you didn't like that one, you're not going to like this one. All right, so the average acceptance rate of major literary magazines is close to 1%. They all kind of clock in around 1%. Wow. But I want you to rank the following magazines from least to most selective. Okay, and this is okay. according to Duotrope, least. which is not... So hardest to publish in to easier to publish in. Easiest to hardest. Easiest. Okay. 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 Sundog Lit. Sure. Boulevard. The Kenyon Review, Plowshares, and the Three Penny Review. Is Three Penny still published? I think so. We could take them out if they're not. No, no, no. Um, no. Okay. I'm going to guess that Sundog is the easiest. Yeah, that's my, yeah. And I'm going to guess that Plowshares is the hardest. Or Kenyon Review. I'm going to put Canon Review just below Plowshares, yeah. but they're probably okay. close. Close. Um, and then what are the others again? Yeah, what are the other options? Boulevard and Three Penny Review. Oh, yeah. I'm going to guess Three Penny's a little... Mm. A little harder than Boulevard? I don't know. I don't I think know. It could be Boulevard and then Three Penny. It could be. 
Actually, part of me wants to put Boulevard like at the top because almost like they were just to be like, I mean, that extreme, this is the you know, thing. Like, it this could is the be. Thing. It mm. could be like there are surprising things all the time. Right. Um, no, I'm, I'm with, just going to guess. I'm with you on this one, Doug. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say maybe Boulevard. So I'm going to guess Sundog and then Three Penny and then Boulevard and then Kenyon Review and then Plowshares. And that's going least selective to most selective. Yeah. I'm guessing. I'm going to just flip the last two and go. Kenyon and Plowshares. Yeah. So Plowshares and then Kenyon is the most? As the most, yeah. Okay. So the Kenyon Review is the most selective at 0.14%. 0. 0.14. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> Just to really drive that number home, uh-huh. it's not 1%. It's 0.14. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then the second most selective is the Three Penny Review. Uh, okay. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners can't see Den's face, but she her mouth is wide open with shock. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I love Three Penny and they're iconic and they've been around for a long time. But I always think of plowshares as like the one. Yeah. Well, continue to be shocked because Boulevard comes next. And then plowshares and then Sundoglet. Okay. Wow. Plowshares has a point three nine percent. All right. Well, I feel a so little better. Than half percent. Percent. Like, None of these are easy to get into. <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> they're, they're all still <laughs> under one percent. Let's just be clear. Like, yeah. 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 like this is the elite. Yeah. That's right. So uh, that's wild. Right? Wow. Yes. Wow. I'm a secret mathematician. I love messing with numbers. Oh. I, I spent way too much time putting those numbers. I pay. <laughs> I pay people to do that for me. <laughs> oh. All right. Here comes an easier one. True or false? You're more likely to be struck by lightning than to win a writing contest with a major publication. True, fucking for sure. Yeah. I think true. I think yeah. true. Yeah. False. What? Your chances of winning a contest with a major publication is anywhere from one in 3,000. Oh, okay. Well, there's a range. To one in 5,000. That's not, you're not comparing apples to apples. Whereas here. you have a one in 15,000 chance of getting struck by lightning. I don't know. Wow. I but know. I love that Where you guys went there because I from. went there too. I was like, definitely I'm getting struck by lightning. Yeah, definitely the lightning. Well, like, here's the 100%. thing. You get struck by lightning and then you can write about it and, and win then, the And then win and win, Yes, yeah. that's like, perfect. Yeah. That's absolutely perfect. Okay. Okay, last one. So I don't know if you guys know but know this, but there's a writer. His name is Clifford Gartsang and he assembled a list of the 238 literary journals that have had at least one story reprinted or mentioned by the pushcart press okay okay process that okay Okay. then he ranked them with a crazy point system he came up with he the only other writer who likes math more than me (laughs) awarding points for like according to how many reprints they had how many mentions and their recency they do that in academic club all the time yeah they're like like, which one is most likely to give you a push push cart prize nomination or whatever um, okay, so I would like you to name any one of the top five best journals for each genre, because they're different for each genre. Right. So any one of the top five for nonfiction. This is open-ended? Yeah. Hmm. They're not, that, I mean, they're not obscure. They're the ones you know. I know. I just haven't <laughs> been in the submission game. I mean, for nonfiction, <laughs> I would guess maybe The Sun, actually. Okay. Um just because they're iconic. 
Correct. The sun right. is number three. What about you? For fiction, I might guess one story. Yes, number two. Oh, see, two. it's good that you're in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like entirely showing my knowledge. <laughs> For poetry, I'm poetry. less knowledgeable. Oh. Um, the New England Review. That's a good guess for poetry, I think. Yeah, I I might I guess no. Blackbird? Nope. No. Mm. What about um Poetry Magazine? Yes. Oh, well, Poetry Magazine is okay. number 2. <laughs> okay. That makes Actually, sense. Kenyon Review is the number 1 I was magazine say for poetry. For, for yeah. poetry. For poetry. I would nope. have said oh. for yeah. The yeah, number one for poetry sure. is Kenyon Review. The number one for fiction is Conjunctions. Oh, which I was that makes sense. By. I should have known. Yeah, if I had thought of Conjunctions, I might have remembered that. That would make sense. And the number one for nonfiction is Orion. Really? See, you knew one. No, so uh, well, it's just coy. funny because they're so. <laughs> I mean, they're they have they're more narrowly focused. I mean, they do yeah, like that's true. Nature and eco and environment, like that's in my realm of right. writing. So it's funny to see that yeah more niche niche yeah anyway what's number yeah. one cool well there you that's have it that's fascinating that's fun <laughs> this is fun yeah. learn something new every day well, with thanks. the inner loop radio you feel like the four hours i spent on that trivia was worth it <laughs> what percentage of your day did you spend anyway no, yeah I'm... anyway thank you thank you for playing with us so Jen. good to chat oh, with so you fun. so fun so yeah. fun and that's our show we will be back next Monday with an inspiration takeover. Awesome. Where a local writer takes over the podcast to give us an intimate look at their writing process. So you don't have to hear just like our voices all the all time. All the time. Uh, if you would like to learn more about The Inner Loop and all of our programming, please visit us at theinnerlooplit.org where you can also, hey, donate to support us and local literature. You can follow us on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop. Don't sound so tired about socials okay socials. i've like connect. i know but like i've really slowly been been in my personal life before the show life. listeners courtney was talking about how old she's getting and she's just <laughs> demonstrating I'm just that. in my feels <laughs> today's episode was produced by me rachel Kuntz. our theme music is by andrew logan and our technical advisor is james skinner thanks again to den michelle norris for joining us on the show if you enjoyed today's episode, submit your feedback for a chance to win $1 million. Rachel, that's false advertising. <laughs> Listeners, that's not true. Um, but better than that, you could leave us a review. Such as the Inner Loop Radio has a 98% <laughs> acceptance rate. So it's a can't lose situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on, Litwiz. <laughs>